Good morning. My name is Cindy Bolton. I'm, I have the pleasure of serving here on the Women's Shepherding Team. I'm going to be reading our scripture for today. It's from Mark 16, verses 1 through 8. It should be up on the screen. It is in your bulletin. Now, when the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James, and Salome bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as, you, just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Amen. Thank you, Cindy. Today is Breck and Cindy's 35th wedding anniversary. So happy anniversary. What makes that better is that a few weeks ago, I had a chance to sit and talk um, to their daughter, Blair, and something came up about Breck and Cindy, and Blair said, you know, I have been given such a gift of grace to have parents who not only love each other, but who regularly repented to each other and repented to us. And we, she said, I hope that our marriage is the same. And so I haven't even told you all that. So, yeah, thanks for the ways that you love each other and reflect Jesus' heart. Good morning. My name is Matt Ham. I'm one of the pastors here on staff. If you've been with us, you know that we've been working our way through looking at the book of Exodus um, through the life of Moses. We're obviously taking a pause today on Easter Sunday um, to study the historical account of Jesus' resurrection from the dead. And we do this um, because as Brett prayed earlier, the resurrection account of Jesus um, is the truth claim on which everything involving Christianity stands or falls. And so let me pray for us and then we're going to jump right in. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the great privilege of being able to gather together as your people to worship you. Thank you that you are the word made flesh, that you dwelt among us, that you are the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you didn't simply live a perfect life and then die on the cross for our sins, but you rose victorious from the grave so that we now have a living hope no matter what circumstances we face in this broken and fallen world. So we pray that your spirit will come, that you will send forth your word to accomplish your purpose, and we ask that it will not return void. We pray that in the name of Jesus. Amen. In his great work, Hope in Times of Fear, the Resurrection and Meaning of Easter, Tim Keller says this, the fact of the resurrection means we have a hope for the future, not based on scientific advance or social progress, but on God himself. And this is not simply an intellectual belief, but as Peter says, it is a living hope, a vital part of the new spiritual life that comes into Christians by the Holy Spirit through what the New Testament calls the new birth. 
Faith in the resurrection implants that hope into the root of our souls. It becomes such a part of who we are that we can face anything. Now, that's true. I think for those of us that are in Christ um, and we read that, we can say, yeah, that's right. That's great. But I, I wonder, and I've especially been for myself wondering the past couple of weeks, do I really believe that? Do I really believe the hope of the resurrection deep in the roots of my soul to such a degree that I can face anything? Keller himself, with great honesty, shortly after that book was published, was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer and said this, I have spent a good part of my life talking with people about the role of faith in the face of imminent death. But when I was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer, I was still caught unprepared. As death, the last enemy, became real to my heart, I realized that my beliefs would have to become just as real to my heart or I wouldn't be able to get through the day. Theoretical ideas about God's love and the future resurrection had to become life-gripping truths or be discarded as useless. Just in the past couple of weeks, I've been wrestling with how much do I really believe truly in my soul the hope of the resurrection that the gospel provides. This started um, roughly two weeks ago when I heard the awful, tragic, evil news that you heard about the shooting in Nashville. I'd love to stand up here and tell you that every time I hear about another um, evil, senseless attack that I'm stopped and I'm I'm impacted, and sadly, I'm just not the way I should be. I think, sadly, we can get immune to some of these things. But when I heard the news about the shooting in Nashville that took place, particularly the news that the pastor's nine-year-old daughter was killed, it just hit me a little bit differently. I remember hugging my eight-year-old daughter, Kate, that night, telling her I loved her, and even waking up a few times wondering, wow, what if that had been my story today? What I truly, as Keller said, have been able to face anything. This past Tuesday was the anniversary of my dad's death. He passed away 29 years ago. You may be wondering, well, gosh, that's a long time. You should get over it by now. I would argue on the one hand that because death is the last enemy and we are created to live forever, that we should always grieve the death of loved ones. But the reason this particular anniversary of my dad's death hit me is because my dad was 42 when he died, and I'm 42 I was 13 when he died, and my daughter Lucy is 13. Now, I knew those things before I woke up on Tuesday, but as I got ready to leave and go to work, and I hugged my daughter Lucy and told her I loved her and I hope you have a good day, I was just backing out of my driveway, and it kind of hit me in a, in a way that's hard to explain, almost an out-of-body experience of, oh, my gosh. Like, what was going through my dad's mind the last time he left our house in his Ford pickup truck? And I drive a Ford pickup truck. What if this is my story today? What if today is the day that I meet my Savior? Do I really, truly, in my heart of hearts, trust and rest in the resurrection of Jesus? As Keller says, it is only when we think about the reality of death as it becomes real that God's love and the future resurrection can become a life-gripping truth. Now, you may be here saying, what the heck are you talking about? This isn't Good Friday. Why all these sad stories about death and loss and mourning and pain? We're supposed to be celebrating and rejoicing at the resurrection, and that's absolutely true. But I do want to really challenge and encourage you not just to sing these songs and recite these creeds without actually thinking and reflecting, is the resurrection of Jesus a life-gripping truth that has taken root in my soul? Is it an anchor 
that steadies me even if I go through the valley of the shadow of death. My prayer and hope is that the Holy Spirit will use his word this morning to do that, that we won't just simply intellectually assent to these truths, but that they really will make their way deep into our heart. And I think in Mark's gospel account, the way the Holy Spirit can do that um, is in three particular ways. First, by really challenging and reorienting our minds. Secondly, by transforming our hearts. And thirdly, by inviting us out of fear and giving us a joy that will last forever. The first thing I believe that we recognize when we read Mark's account is that it challenges our minds. And just so we're clear, what I mean is that it engages our intellect. It calls us to use our reasoned, rational thought to consider the shocking declaration in verse 6 that Jesus, who was alive, was murdered, he was dead and buried, and then he rose again from the dead. That's it. In all of its simplicity, that is the historical truth claim on which everything we believe stands or falls. In other words, it does not believe if you like Jesus' teachings. It doesn't matter if you think, hey, it would be better for our society if everyone loved their neighbor as themselves. And that's all true. If Jesus did not actually die and rise from the grave, our faith is completely worthless. And that's not my opinion. The Apostle Paul tells the church, if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Futile means that it is incapable of producing any useful result. In other words, it is pointless. Now, you may be surprised to hear this. You may have come in here today thinking that Christian faith tells you you must turn off your mind and make a blind leap in the dark. Like Mark Twain, who wrongly said, faith is believing in what you know ain't true. Christian faith knows nothing of that definition. As Josh and Sean McDowell explain in their book, Evidence That Demands a Verdict, Christianity appeals to history. It appeals to facts of history that can be examined through normal means of historicity. For the Christian, the historical events recorded in the scriptures are essential. Christianity is a historical religion. It is tied to the life, teachings, death, and resurrection of Jesus. These claims are testable in that anyone can actually examine their validity and determine historically whether they are reliable. Christianity does not demand blind faith. In fact, quite the opposite. When Jesus Christ and the apostles called upon a person to exercise faith, it was not blind faith, but rather an intelligent faith. And that's exactly what Mark is doing in his eyewitness gospel account. And we see two specific ways that he writes this narrative to highlight these things absolutely happened. And the first is he wants to make sure we know the names of the first eyewitnesses. Verse 1, he says, when the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome, they bought spices that they might go and anoint Jesus' body. If you go back into chapter 15 that we read on Good Friday about the death of Jesus, these women are named three times in total. Now, Mark is the shortest of all the gospel accounts. He is very efficient and economical in his use of words, unlike me, sadly, all too often. I'm trying to be efficient today. Point being, when he says something over and over and over again, he's saying, pay attention. He's saying, you need to know by name the women who saw Jesus, the women who are testifying to the truth of his resurrection from the dead, the fact that he is alive right now. You can go talk to them. 
You can cross-examine them. You can hear their testimony to see if it's credible or not. Now, that may not be super shocking to us. But in this day and age, it was extremely shocking. Because to say that women were not given the respect and dignity that they deserve as image bearers would be a gross understatement. Women were so undervalued in this culture that they were not allowed to give testimony in the court of law. They were not considered credible. And so the point being, if you were trying to make up a story that isn't true, you would never, ever in this context say that women were the first eyewitnesses. And even if you say, well, hey, let's give them the benefit of the doubt, maybe Mark and the other gospel writers were very progressive. My family just watched Paddington 2 last night, and he talks about how he always wants to seek the good in every person. So maybe they were just really, really progressive and, you know, trying to be really dignified. If they were trying to do that and they said, let's just choose a woman as an eyewitness, they would have tried to have found the most credible, highest-ranking woman in their society. He wouldn't have led by saying the very first woman to see this eyewitness account was Mary Magdalene. Why? Because they also had written in Luke 8 that Mary Magdalene used to be demon-possessed. So you would never say, hey, listen, we're calling you to not simply believe, but to base your entire life and eternal destiny on this story that Jesus died and rose again. And the main person I want you to go talk to is a female whose testimony is not valid in court who used to be demon-possessed. <laughs> Historians and scholars point out the only way you would have ever chosen to do this, the only logical explanation is if it actually happened. If it happened the exact way that it is written. The second thing that we noticed is how shameful and embarrassing this story is to Jesus' own followers. First, even for the women who without a doubt were by far the most loyal and faithful followers of Jesus. The text tells us that when they arrived at the tomb on Easter morning, they were preparing to anoint Jesus' dead body. They did not show up for a sunrise service. They did not have any category, expectation, or hope that Jesus would not be dead. Now, why is that so shameful? Because Jesus told his disciples over and over and over again that after he died, he would rise victorious on the third day. Mark 8, 31 and 32. Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and the scribes and be killed. But after three days, rise again, and he said this to them plainly. So no confusing parable that they didn't understand exactly what he was saying. And notice what the story highlights. None of his male disciples were there. None of them. You would have thought at a minimum when you're reading the story that the disciples would be there waiting. Even if they didn't believe, they would be hoping that maybe, just maybe, what he plainly told us would come true. Or again, if we're going to be Paddington the bear and we're going to give them the benefit of the doubt and we're going to highlight that, we're going to highlight that maybe they were afraid. These chief priests and rulers and the Romans just murdered Jesus after Pilate declared he was innocent and had committed no crime. Maybe it's not safe for us to go. You would at least expect that they would say we were hiding out, but we were looking and hoping and waiting that he would rise from the dead. But no, the text says that they were nowhere to be found, that they not only um, didn't believe Jesus, they weren't even hoping that it might possibly be true. And to make matters worse, Matthew tells us that Jesus' enemies paid attention and to some degree took his word seriously. Matthew 27, it says, The next day, that is, after the day of preparation, 
the chief priests and Pharisees gathered before Pilate. They said, sir, remember how that imposter said, while he was still alive, after three days I will rise. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people he has risen from the dead. This last fraud will be worse than the first. So Pilate said, you have a guard of soldiers. Go make it as secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. What's all this mean? Very simply, as the McDowell say, this is evidence that demands a verdict. The only plausible explanation for why these things were written in this manner is that they actually happened. In so many ways, they were embarrassing and shameful and discrediting to the very people that were trying to convince others that Jesus was, in fact, the Messiah that rose from the dead. If you are here today and you are struggling or have struggled with the true claims of Christianity because you wrongly believed it requires you to cut off your rational thought and intellect, I want to invite you to consider this evidence. What I just shared is a mere appetizer of the overwhelming accounts that Jesus did, in fact, rise from the dead. And so please, please take time to consider it. But the other thing that Mark does that I think in many ways is more significant, that has the power to actually transform our hearts, is he highlights what the grace of God revealed in the resurrection can do to us. And he highlights this in verse 7, where Jesus' message through the angel to the women is, but go and tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee, and there you will see him just as he told you. Now, why is this so significant? Well, I've already highlighted that the disciples weren't there, so they clearly didn't believe that he was going to rise victorious from the grave. But if you're familiar with the gospel accounts, you know that Jesus repeatedly told his disciples, I'm going to go to Jerusalem, I'm going to be turned over to the hands of sinners, crucified and rise again, and all of you guys are going to forsake me and deny that you even know me. And they were like, no, we won't. We'll never do that, Jesus. That'll never happen. And of course, exactly what Jesus said occurred. And Peter especially, as kind of the loud, outspoken leader of all of the disciples, said, Jesus, even if all of these other guys do that, I never will. I will go to prison or die before I ever deny knowing you. Jesus said, Peter, my friend, before the rooster crows tonight, you're going to publicly deny knowing me three times. And of course, as in everything Jesus ever said, exactly what he predicted came true. And so now what we expect from our perspective is that the angel would tell the women, hey, you don't have to be afraid. Jesus rose victorious from the grave. He'll have a conversation with you later about coming here thinking he was going to be dead and not trusting that he was going to be alive. But go see him in Galilee. And if you find anybody else that is wanting to be his follower, they can come too. But don't tell the disciples. They, they've blown it. There's no way he's going to let them come back and be a part of his group. They have broken his trust one too many times. On the night that he had the Passover and he washed their feet, he had to tell them to be quiet because they argued about which one was the greatest. It's over and done. Even if they come back like the prodigal son and they have a plan to make amends and ask Jesus, just make us your servants and we'll try very hard to earn it back. Nope, too late. But he doesn't say that. Instead, he says, I want you to go find my disciples and I want you to go find Peter and I want you to tell them that I can't wait to see them. What does that mean? 
What it means is that Jesus' love and his grace goes before any act of confession and repentance and contrition on our part. It is his love and his grace that invites our hearts to come to him. And he doesn't just simply say, I've risen, I've conquered death and the grave. Go tell my disciples that everything I said was true. Peace out, I'll see you in the kingdom. He says, I can't wait to see you. I can't wait to look you in the eyes and let you know how much I love you. See, what the disciples were experiencing in this time wasn't just simply fear of the authorities killing them because they used to associate with Jesus. They were experiencing something so much worse. They were experiencing shame. The shadow of shame and guilt and regret that made it where they couldn't even look in the mirror, much less think of going in public. The thing that we thought we would never do, we have done. How can we live with ourselves anymore? And as bad as it was for the whole group of the disciples, Peter's was so much worse. He who had proudly bragged, I'll never do that, no matter what. He was so overwhelmed with shame, he didn't even associate with the other disciples. But Jesus says, make sure you go get my disciples and go find Peter. I can't wait to see them. Notice what Matthew adds in his account. Jesus said, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. In his book, The Soul of Shame, Kurt Thompson says this. Listen, on on Good Friday, Eric invited us. He said, hey, I want you to try your best. Close your eyes. Try to just comprehend, if you're able, what it would have been like to be there at the crucifixion, to see Jesus being nailed to a cross and, and stripped and humiliated for us. I want you to consider just briefly what it would have been like to be um, a part of his disciples, to be so overwhelmed with shame that you thought there's no way I can ever, ever show my face again in public. Kurt Thompson says to be human is to be infected with this phenomenon we call shame. So in other words, to be human is we see in our picture of the disciples a reflection of our own hearts. He says shame is something we all experience at some level more consciously for some than others. Of course, there are obvious examples that come to mind, times we have felt everything from slight embarrassment to deep humiliation. Another feature of shame's presentation is that of hiding. Whether it is shrinking into the silence of our own minds or the literal turning away from someone with a downcast facial expression with eyes lowered, shame leads us to cloak ourselves with invisibility to prevent further intensification of the emotion. In his book, he explains how he believes that shame is the greatest weapon that evil has in his arsenal. In this broken and fallen world, he says shame functions like a dark shadow that just hangs over our lives. And we see this immediately in the garden when sin occurred and Adam and Eve said now they realize that they were naked and afraid because of their shame, they hid They thought the only way to avoid avoid further hurt is to make sure that I'm not seen. But God sought them out. The same way Jesus does post-resurrection. He says, I want to see you. And that's so important for us to grasp because shame is a function of the eyes. Last weekend on our men's retreat, we had roughly 160 guys go to Montreat. And we had Bill McCutcheon from Hilton Head Prez lead our time. 
And Friday night, he kind of set the table by saying, hey, guys, you got a unique opportunity this weekend, as Tripp explained, to not simply grow in your vertical relationship with Jesus, but to experience his love horizontally with one another. But in order for that to happen, you got to have the courage to show up and allow yourself to be seen. you got to be willing to be honest about what's really going on when you're having conversations with one another. And then he turned to the group and he said, but here's the, the responsibility that we all have when someone has the courage to share what's going on, don't flinch. Don't flinch. Because if you flinch, if you're like, oh my gosh, I didn't expect you to say that, boy, it's over. It's over. That, that cloud of shame is going to settle so deeply, they're going to be like, there's no shot that I'm going to open up and share again with anyone else. Listen, friends, the good news of the gospel is that Jesus doesn't flinch. He doesn't flinch. The accounts tell us that the moment Peter denied knowing Jesus for the third time and the rooster crowed, he turned and saw Jesus looking at him, looking into his eyes. And just so we don't get it twisted, it wasn't a look of disgust. It wasn't a flinch. It wasn't a mocking, sneering, I told you so, you fool, you better humble yourself now. It was a look of love and affection, one that we can't even imagine, but we will experience one day in the new heavens and the new earth. C.S. Lewis, in his masterful work, The Weight of Glory, said, glory for a human being is to hear that you are pleasing to the one whose pleasure you most long to fulfill. Does that resonate and stir in your hearts? Growing up, without a doubt, the person whose pleasure I most longed to experience and fulfill was my dad. Luke Combs has a new song. Sorry, I didn't mean to start getting choked up. He has a new song called See Me Now. And he says, they say that I walk just like you. They say I talk just like you. They say these scuffed up boots look as good on me as they did on you. And that old Ford you had running is just as good as it ever was. I wonder what you'd think about that if you walked in and pulled up a chair in the kitchen and said, tell me about everything that I've been missing. We'd be trashing the price of gas and politicians, but I could tell you about the life that I've been living. I'd like to think that you're the proudest guy in town. If I could see you, see me now. There'd be new old stories and happy tears. If I could see you, see me now. Oh, there's so much that grabs me with what he writes. And I love just the wisdom and the depth and beauty of how Combs rightly gets at, not just if you could see me now, but if I could see you, see me now. But here's the truth. If my dad was still alive, if he came over to my house this afternoon and sat down in my kitchen and heard stories about all the life that I've been living and told me that he was the proudest guy in town, as great and amazing as that would be, it wouldn't be enough. It wouldn't be enough to invite my heart to truly rest and to live with the joy that enables me to face anything in life. But the good news of the gospel is that my heavenly father, who alone has a voice that can quiet all my fears and invite my heart to true joy, looks at me because of the cross and resurrection and says, Matt, you are my son whom I love and with whom I'm well pleased. And if you're brand new, that's not because I'm some amazing, great, awesome guy. That declaration is true for every child of God. 
The author of Hebrews says, this is why we must look to Jesus, for he alone is the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. What does that mean? It means that Jesus willingly experienced the most shameful event in all of human history so that in every possible way he could cover our shame, so that he could look us in the eyes with a look of affection and delight that calls our heart to deep joy for all eternity. Jesus told his disciples in John 16, truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, you will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. And then he said, you have sorrow now, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. Now, Jesus has promised that when you see me again, you'll have joy that lasts forever. He wasn't talking about his second coming. That's absolutely true for us. When Jesus has promised, he'll come back and wipe away every tear from every eye. He was telling his disciples, when you see me in three days, and I'm alive, and I'm not dead, you're going to have a joy that covers your shame and invites you to live with a freedom that you could never possibly imagine. And that happened. How do we know it happened? In part because they wrote these stories that they would have never, ever chosen to write on their own. And they went out into the world sharing the message of the gospel that literally has changed the course of human history and has changed our lives as well. That same resurrection, hope, and power and joy is available to us to the degree that we anchor our hearts in the good news of the gospel. Let me close with this story from the last battle in the Chronicles of Narnia by C.S. Lewis. If you're not familiar with the Chronicles of Narnia, it is a, a group of children's books and it tells a story about this amazing land of Narnia where Aslan, who is the Christ figure, is the king. And he's having a conversation in the very end of all the books with the Pevensey children who have been major players as kings and queens of Narnia. Aslan turns to them and he says, you do not yet look so happy as I mean you to be. Lucy said, we're so afraid of being sent away, Aslan, and you have sent us back into our own world so often. No fear of that, said Aslan. Have you not guessed? Their hearts leaped and a wild hope rose within them. There was a real railway accident, said Aslan softly. Your father and mother and all of you are, as you used to call it in the Shadowlands, dead. The term is over. The holidays have begun. The dream is ended. This is the morning. And as he spoke, he no longer looked to them like a lion. But the things that began to happen after that were so great and beautiful that I cannot write them. And for us, this is the end of all the stories. And we can most truly say that they all lived happily ever after. But for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. But now at last, they were beginning chapter one of the great story, which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. Lord Jesus, we pray that even as we read, not only about the resurrection account from Mark, but even um, depictions and stories such as this one from C.S. Lewis, that you will stir in our heart a deep longing for heaven.
that you will call us um, out of fear and out of hiding into the joy that is only possible because you, Lord Jesus, willingly experienced the most shameful death in all of human history so that you can cover our shame in every way. I pray that you'll help us to believe that you look at us as your children with deep delight and affection. Help us to believe it to such a degree that we can be conduits of your grace in one another's lives, that by your grace we can risk being honest about what's really going on, and I pray that we won't flinch, but we will be able to encourage one another with the comfort and encouragement we receive from you, our Savior King. And so even as we respond now in worship, I pray that you transform our hearts, that you anchor the resurrection hope deep in our souls. We pray that for your glory and also for our good. In Christ's name, amen.